my guest on this episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast is the current voice of the Boise State women's basketball team, co-host with the voice of Boise State Athletics and the voice of the Broncos, Bob Beeler, on a sports talk show on the flagship station of the Broncos Sports Network, and an up-and-coming broadcaster, Chris Lewis. If you like this interview, please rate, subscribe, and review the Blind Broadcaster Podcast on Apple Pod and most podcast platforms, and soon hopefully more platforms as this podcast expands. If you have suggestions for guests that you'd like to hear on this podcast, by all means, please email me at Luther dot king dot tsb at gmail dot com twitter at king underscore tsb and facebook if you'd like to try to find me use the email address in the information at the top of the intro sit back and enjoy the interview with chris lewis of boise state university Chris Lewis, girls, women's basketball play-by-play voice, occasional Bob Beeler substitute and fill-in, and for now, not hosting a show, but when he actually was doing a show, Boise State Broncos Sports Today, and other things that he did. <clears throat> so, how did you get your start in broadcasting, and where you live, were there any opportunities at your high school to do broadcasts? And you are not originally from Boise, Idaho, correct? Correct. Yeah, I'm from uh, the South Jersey area, right outside of Philadelphia. Um, and I've kind of always been a, you know, a sports fan and the age old tale of if you can't play it anymore, you still want to talk about it. So you go into sports broadcasting and, you know, mine's no different. You know, I was one of those where both parents worked. So during the summer, especially, they needed something to do with me. So instead of, uh, you know, it was always basketball camps uh, every week during the summer. Me and my brother would go to a basketball camp and, you know, try to compete there. But there was one week in the summer where there was no basketball camps. So instead of basketball camp, there was this sports broadcasting camp that was going on run by play-by-play networks. Jeremy Treatman was the guy who ran it. It was based out of Philadelphia. So instead of going to a basketball camp, I went to a sports broadcasting camp. Had a great time. Thought it was fun. And I was like, all right, yeah, this is definitely something I want to do uh, if I don't make the NBA. And spoiler alert, I did not make the NBA. <laughs> and look at where you are now. It turned out just fine. Exactly. So, uh, you know, I, I went on the path to wanting to go to Syracuse for the longest time. So my whole high school life was making sure I did whatever I could to get into Syracuse. I did a lot of broadcasting in high school, whether it was – football or basketball I set up kind of my own we didn't have like a radio station for uh, broadcast for students I know a lot of high schools do do that we right. did not but um, one of the things that is a product of this era is you can create your own thanks to online content so I think it was like teamline.cc uh, it was just only a little bit of money to set that up so is I that even still the- available I don't even know I have no idea because I, I mean, because I, I remember hearing a lot about Team Line back in the '90s and or 
you know, yeah. early 2000s. I know a few high schools had their games on team line. And then I looked it up and I'm like, wow, it's still there. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I don't know if it's even I have no still idea. there. It could, still, it could be, it might not be, who knows. But that's what I did. <laughs> and then uh, eventually Syracuse and was a product of the Syracuse student media uh, renegade that we have going on there, I suppose, with the, the student radio stations and TV station. And after doing all that for four years and getting a lot of reps and making a lot of friends and having them help push me along, the Syracuse competition there is really fun. It's one of the great parts about being there is how passionate everybody is about being a sports broadcaster. And then uh, Idaho Falls was my first stop out of Syracuse, doing minor league baseball there while I was out in Idaho Falls. The women's basketball job at Boise State opened, and thanks to being close and you know having a connection, Bob Beeler, who's the uh, play-by-play voice for football and basketball, you mentioned him. Yep. Um, having that connection was the difference in me getting this job at Boise State doing women's basketball. Eventually, was able to parlay that into doing sports talk radio in the city as well. So getting to do a lot of different things. So for you, how long did it feel like, how long did it feel like it took you to get a rapport and build a relationship with the coaching staff and the players and seeing all the players that have come through Boise State and things like that over the years or since you've been there for a while and now that you have an idea of the lay of the land, what was it like at the beginning when you had no idea, but what did you feel like you were comfortable with being the lead voice of a women's basketball program? Yeah, well, one of the uh, great things about Boise State has been the stability within the athletic department as well. Run, there's a reason why it's one of the top group of fives in football and really all the other sports too. It's because the athletic department has that element of stability so, like, the fact that women's basketball, they actually do have the same coach there now um, that was there six, seven years ago when I first arrived at Boise State. So, uh, Gordy Fresnell is a women's basketball coach, and he's just the nicest guy. Uh, he really is. He's high character. Nobody says any bad word about him. Uh, he brings in a high character of player to the program. So, uh, the team is very friendly and very respectful. And when you set the culture like that, uh, you can't help but, uh, you know, kind of settle in and feel feel at home. And that's one of the great things about being with this program is that they have success on the court, but they also have success off the court, and you feel like they do things the right way. And yeah, you, you kind of felt right at home right away. It was just an adjustment period, I guess, to learn the head coach, just like it's an adjustment period to learn anybody that you're working with. But uh, I feel like in terms of difficulty of the task, I've got it pretty easy here at Boise State with women's basketball. And it's really the same way with most of the sports. Sean Garris with volleyball, Jim Thomas with women's soccer. The list goes on and on. What things from Syracuse are you still using to this day from as the lead broadcaster at Boise State? What what were the biggest keys and takeaways that the radio stations, TV stations, professors, and those people that were 
you know, helping you along? What were the things you felt like you learned from Syracuse that you're still learning and using now at Boise State? Yeah, well, first of all, the fundamentals. The fundamentals of play-by-play, the fundamentals of broadcast. Those are some of the things that you learn while you're in college and you learn from some of the upperclassmen and how to get better, how to describe uh, the mentality, all that. That's something you learn in school, and then that never leaves you. And you're always striving to do better in those areas, and you're always trying to work to improve. And then that drive, right? Because you know from being in school that it isn't easy. And people think that, all right, you just kind of show up. You Put the headset on, do home. the game, go home. Yeah, exactly. You know, the prep work that goes involved. You knew that before college, you know, back in high school. And that sports broadcasting kid, you started to get an idea of the prep that goes in. But like, it's one of those things that you just keep getting reminded of and you, you learn to love the prep. <coughs> and that's one of the things that I developed in school, both high school and Syracuse, is a love of the prep. And that's something that still sticks with me. And that never leaves. So those are a couple of things. And then also the networking aspect of it. You learn how important it is to make connections, to talk to people, to uh, reach out to fellow colleagues in the industry and check up on them, see how they're doing. How can you help them? And then in turn, maybe they'll help you down the line. So those are some of the main things. As an old adage goes, sometimes it's all about the Jimmys and the Joes, about, you know, the who you then who you know. But in this case, when you're networking and trying to be as selfless as possible, you can get further up the ladder. But sadly, I think a lot of broadcasters get in this business because it's all about, oh, I can get the glitz and the glamour and the, and the fame and everything else because it's all about me. At the end of the day, no, it's not all about you because, you know, you're listening – to yourself, but the more people you network with and the more critiques you get, but at the end of the day, you're still having to critique yourself. Yeah, and it's also, you know, learn to love the game, right? Like, that's also exactly. another thing. You can't get in it to love yourself and to have it like a self-affirmation. I mean, you're, it'll come across in your call that you're putting yourself above the game, and that's the whole thing. The game comes first. You got to be true to the game itself. As Tony LaRusso always says about baseball, if you play if you play the game well, the game respects you. If you don't, you know, it's going to find a way to knock you down a peg to remind you that there is a way to do things the right way. And that's the same thing in broadcasting. If you treat it, if you do it well, it's, you know, going to give you what you deserve. If you don't, karma in the broadcast world, as in life, is going to find a way to knock you down a peg and humble you. Yeah, Absolutely. What are, you, what are your thoughts on the last dance the uh, 97-98 Bulls got you that, I mean, I don't know if you got a chance to watch it or so. What have your thoughts been about it? No doubt I've watched it, of course. Um, it's, it's basically the Super Bowl and the NBA Finals and the NHL Stanley Cup and all put together. And the World Series is only one right now because we don't have live sports mm-hmm. except for the draft, which is also this weekend, which gave yeah, us I, th- I think that's just draft. about to end, I think, because I'm yeah. seeing the final reports on Twitter on who's going where. Yeah, we're in the seventh round of the yeah. draft right now as we record this. But, yeah, the last dance has been like our uh, evolving <laughs> sports conversation piece that we can – uses the sports community to feel like we're one still, you know, like the exactly. thing where we can watch <laughs> together. That's like my main takeaway is that it's just like something to 
watch together like we always did with live sports. Exactly. You you like, were, you were, you were with me. your brother. You were with your brothers and your sisters in the broadcasting business, and now you yeah. just have something to talk about. Exactly. It's just the the sports thing that we're all kind of connected with. And even if it's not the greatest, and I think it is highly well done. And uh, I know at this point, I think there is a lot more of the behind the scenes things to come. I think from what I understand, the first yeah, I think parts were more set up and yeah. storyline establishment. And we're going to get more of the behind the scenes and uh, that hidden footage that they were hyping up for now years. Um, they're going to try to implement that into the next few parts. I saw so, the, the little trailer about that. What was it yesterday? Maybe a couple of days ago, and I'm like, "Whoa!" Because I, mean, I listened to the Thirty for Thirty podcast, and they got Jalen and Jacoby doing breakdown with the main guy that put it together. Yeah, and I'm like, "Wow, that's incredible!" Because I remember, I remember those, you know, <clears throat> the back end of the Bulls sleepy from '95 to '97. I remember all that. Mm. And for me, that was a beautiful time of basketball for me. I mean, I, I like some of the players of today's basketball, but it just feels like we've kind of lost what basketball is, sort of. But maybe that's just me. I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I'll disagree. I love how basketball's played right now. I love the game. I think it's as aesthetically pleasing as it's ever been. The level of player is high. The characters within the game, it's a high-character game. You don't have bad guys in the league right now. So I just think right now for the NBA, it's really at an excellent place from the style of play standpoint and who's involved. What do you think the NBA goes now with Adam Silver as the commissioner? What do you think he could take this since the late David Stern passed away not too long ago? Where, where, do, you, yeah. where do you see the league under Adam Silver's leadership as the commish? Where do you see it going? Well, they have some challenges. They, they really do. I mean, they have uh, ratings challenges this year, and it's because the whole, the, their model is almost based on you know, heavy cable usage and relying on people to have cable with you know, their TNT, ESPN, most of their national broadcasts right. are on cable, but you have people cutting the cord, and you're a young, you're a young person's league. You try to you know, say that you're very popular on social media and you're really popular for the younger generation of sports fans. But how exactly are you going to profit off of that? You know, like still where the money is was, you know, broadcast television ratings and you can't, you can't monetize Twitter, you know, like no, you can you can't do that. conversation on social media, but where's the dollars that are going to come from that? And that still is what generates the league and what has the league run. So they're going to have to figure out all those problems. And um, you'd like to think that they have enough smart people within the front offices of the league office and also the uh, owners. I mean, owners are people who got their money more recently with technology and cutting edge, while the NFL has more old money involved with, you know, legacy and, you know, oil money and mm -hmm. all the things that were – you know, generations ago, it seems, where they got their money. So I, I'm interested to see how they figure it out, but they do have some challenges. Do you think there may be a possibility with all these cable networks that they may say, okay, we've got NBA TV, we got all these cable networks, but for those people that can't get it, 
Do you think there may be an opportunity that they may bring NBC back into the fold? Because I know they have Probably. ABC and, you know, things like that. But you think well, there may be really either no more? I'm sure there's going to be a competition within the you know the 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 industry for trying to acquire live sports. I mean that's always the thing of live sports content if you can get it right now because of really the time that we're in where yep. it's one of the things that you have to watch at the time that it actually happens. Uh, it's valuable for a TV network. Now, I don't think that like NBC would be a favorite or anything. And then TV deal is a couple of years away. And mm -hmm. I think ABC, ESPN wants it. And the NBA likes the fact that they have a relationship with uh, ESPN because they do feel like ESPN does drive the sports conversation. So I really don't see that changing as much. My question is, how can the NBA get more games on ABC? And will they try to do that where, you know, they added in in the last couple of years their Saturday prime time, which is another yeah, ABC Saturday, window. Yeah. But how can they get on network TV instead of cable TV before the NFL season ends? Because Here's it does seem like – all the all the national TV network games yep. come after football season. Man. Yep, they do. And how can you get on the networks earlier in your year to build that forward momentum mm -hmm. for the stretch run? And that's my question. And then, you know, even when you get past the All-Star break and then when you get past, when you get past Christmas Day, nobody's watching into the playoffs. And now, and think about it now with what the NFL has now put in place, adding a 17th game, trying to go to 18, and plus an extra wild card. So now the number two seed did not have to won't get that buy like the number one seed anymore. That's going to probably add even more ratings to the NFL cash flow already. So that's probably going to make it even tougher for the NBA. Exactly. Adding the extra week, now you're creeping in towards your all-star break territory if the NBA leaves that the same. And there's also the fact, do you change your calendar around? Do you try exactly. to start the season closer to Christmas and go deeper into July with your season? Would you consider, instead of an 82-game schedule, would you stick with the 82-game schedule? Would you, like, get rid of some games and say, okay, instead of an 82-game schedule, we may have – a 60-game schedule or a 70-game I think we're talking about things like that, and there might be reasons to do it. I'm more, I'm kind of a traditionalist in the fact that I don't have a problem with 82 as long as the games are spaced out enough. I, I, I want to see NBA basketball, and I enjoy it for the uh, beauty of the sport, if you will, and the storylines within it. But if you do want to build more urgency, I could see shortening it, but like, as a fan of the Sixers, like, I want to see the Sixers play. Like, I would rather see them play more than play less. Okay, speaking of the Sixers, do you think if, you know, the season is over or they're not going to be able to finish the season out plus the playoffs, what do you think they do with uh, Simmons and Embiid? Who, I think if, if, if they, they should. You know, if, you know, if they had to choose one, 
who do you think the Sixers would keep and who do you think they could try to... Well, why, why would they ever have... My question is, well, they shouldn't ever have to choose one. Like The whole point is to have two guys who are up and of top of the league talent. Like, I don't, n- none of them are good enough to win it without the other. Sure. They kind of need each other in that way for them to reach the goal of championship contention, which... If you build the right team around them, I think you can do. Like it's just a matter of the front office has made a number of mistakes over the last few years yeah. of trying to build a proper team around them, and that your your still your best bet is to have those right, Simmons and manipulate a, your roster, and you're running out of ways to be flexible. I mean, you signed Horford to a contract that is not a good one, and he's a terrible fit, and uh, he's and he's not a center. starter either. Yeah, they had to move him to the bench because he literally makes the two best players worse because of where he wants to be on the floor. So, like, that's just a bad fit. And now you have to get rid of him and try to flip him. But his contract isn't appealing, so now you have to attach draft picks to get rid of him. Or one of your young players who, you know, has a bright future, whether it's Matisse Seibel or whether it's Shake Milton. So, like, that, those are the kind of things you run into when you make roster mistakes. And, like, I like Tobias Harris. His contract is – definitely an overpay for mm-hmm. uh, what the production is, but uh, he's also a guy who actually fits well with them, and he can do a lot of different things. So I don't have much of a problem with his contract, but the fact is he does make close to you know, $36 million a year. So that's starter money. Piece that's going to be impossible. Well, he's a high-end starter. He's a good player. He's a you know, fringe all-star caliber guy and fits well with the team. So that's fine, but you have to make sure you <laughs> – everybody else around who can fit because you don't have much flexibility. And then when you sign Horford to the contract and make that commitment, that that, your salary that cap. Runs, yeah, that runs into the issues that are centered around why the team hasn't see the thing is record wise, you can say a lot of things like the injuries have been a factor, you know, sure. Richardson's missed a lot of the time and B's missed some Simmons missed the uh, end of the season that we had to this point. So, they're really good at home still. They're 29 and two at home. Yeah. Even with all that. So there's reasons that, you know, they still stand out as a great team. I think their coach is a good coach and Brett Brown, but there's also reasons to believe that his time is closer to being over than not. Even though, again, I think he's a really good coach. Is he the right fit for the team at this right time? Maybe, but He's also one of the few people in the organization that I do think knows what they're doing. The front office, I don't necessarily believe in that much. Ownership has had the reasons to be critical of them. You know, Elton Brand, I don't think, has done a great job. So, <laughs> Brett Brown's one of the few in the organization that I think is actually really good at his role. And if you get rid of him, I kind of feel like, okay, well, now all these other people are in charge and have more of a voice who I really think had no clue. Only bad things would happen from that. Well, let's talk about storylines. I know we had to kind of quickly peruse here. At the college level, how do you know what storylines that are important and how do you know the storylines that are somewhat and then how many of the storylines when you look for like women's basketball or whatever the sport you're talking about or covering that – is not going to be needed for a particular game, but you'll come back to it later. Well, you'll never know what you'll need until the game 
sort of explains itself, but you have to prepare for anything. So your prep or your amount of storylines are never complete until game time. Like you're always researching. You're researching before the game when you get the assignment, and then you're researching when you get to the arena, when you're talking to coaches and players before the game. You're always looking for nuggets, notes, and info that you can weave into the broadcast, but then you don't know what you'll need until the game manifests itself, which is the beauty of the whole thing is that, you know, you search for the perfect broadcast and a perfect way to frame the perfect story and which one is relevant right now. And that balance is impossible to exactly master and you're already striving for it. So that's why, you know, I kind of love sports broadcasting in a way because it's a storyteller, storyteller's game but yet you can't master it. You know, you can do as good as you can or you think you did, but there's always things that you feel like you can do better the next time uh, that you hit the air. So the right answer is, yeah, there's no set number. And you learn by just kind of doing it and learning the game flow, figuring out what's relevant, what's not. Trying not to force things that don't belong, but to provide proper context to highlight what does happen. How long did it take you to get comfortable and find your sound as a broadcaster? Well, I think that I can get better at that. And I think most broadcasters would say that you, everybody can get better at finding their own sound or perfecting their own sound or mastering their own sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try to bring the energy and bring description, which probably are the two things that stand out when you hear my call more than a lot of other areas, I would say, but there are things that you can do better to like to feel comfortable. I, I don't like that word comfortable because comfortable implies that you know you're satisfied. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're satisfied, and I don't feel like I'm satisfied. Me neither. Don't feel bad. Join the club. I, <laughs> exactly. I, you, know, I, you know, even when I'm doing high school or whenever I get back to, you know, somewhat whatever the new normal is, I never really feel satisfied because I'm always, you know, picking myself apart even when I'm not listening to a game where I'm sending out, you know, my link like I did to you to, you know, resend it back to you, have you listen to some stuff on because I always want to figure out besides, you know, me giving my own self-criticism, how can I improve myself? Like yeah. through somebody else's eyes, like, you know, what do they see? What are they hearing? No doubt. And yeah, I, I would think that that's not unique to me and you. I, I would think the people at the highest level. I mean, Joe Buck's been promoting a lot of the projects that he's involved with. I think he has a new podcast and always written a couple of books. And but he's documented the struggle of uh, finding his own voice and separating his voice from his father's voice and mm-hmm. trying to carve out his own path. And he is still striving at that. I think if you would talk to Mike Tirico, he would probably say something similar. Um, Jim Nance, probably something similar, although, you know, you never know for sure. But I don't think anybody feels satisfied or comfortable because the minute you feel like you have a perfect broadcast, you should quit, right? Everybody exactly. Has, like the perfect golf game or the perfect basketball. Nobody has a perfect game. That's impossible. You're never going to get a perfect game. I don't even, I don't even think – pitchers in baseball, even though they pitched a perfect game, they probably never felt like they pitched the perfect game because there was yeah, like, exactly. could have, you know, finished better. Exactly where you wanted it to go? No. Exactly. That's the whole thing. How do you keep yourself mentally sharp, even though you're 
thoughts doing radio side. I know you do some online stuff and radio I, online it, and things like it. How do you, you know, keep yourself mentally sharp and mentally focused when you're about to go into a game day knowing that, okay, it, you know, you're looking at the storyline of, okay, what if this happens and if that happens, like, why does this game matter? You're trying to make sure you keep all those keys and points that need to be stressed while you're actually making sure you're actually still doing the broadcast and giving the broadcast what it deserves, energy-wise, voice-wise, research-wise, and everything else that goes along with it. Well, you prep. I mean, that's the number one thing. And how do you feel like you're uh, mentally sharp is that you, you feel prepared. You feel like you studied. You feel like you know everything that you need to know. So that's probably the most important way to answer that question is you just feel like you went into the broadcast with the answers to the test. It's almost like when you take a test when you're back at school, like you felt comfortable when you spent hours studying and you feel like you know everything. The times you felt nervous or you felt yourself tapping your pen or you were squirming in your chair is when you know deep down that you didn't really study for this test and you don't know what's going to be on it. Mm -mm. So when you did your first game with the women's basketball team, what were the nerves like and how long did it take you that you felt like, okay, I can do this now? I felt like I could do this before I really you know, ever called a Boise State women's basketball game because I do feel like at Syracuse, I was prepared to do broadcasting. I had prepared enough. I had done enough games that I know how to do this. Um, maybe with uh, Boise State, I'm just trying to think back to that, making sure I had all the equipment set up right and uh, <laughs> knowing all those things that you can't really prepare for until you actually do it. Like those are maybe one of the, some of the more concerns. But for broadcasting, I feel like I can do it. Now, do I, do I know the team as well then as I know now? No. But you still stick to what you know. And that's the fundamentals of play-by-play, storyline, research, prep, the conversations that you've had beforehand. And you feel like you could do an adequate enough job. Now, would it be perfect? No. But again, we just said, never feel like our broadcast is perfect. But, of course not. Um, you feel like you can do it. I, I think that battle has to come before you even step on the air, uh, step in the booth or step courtside is believing that you can do it. So I know you're satisfied at a D1 level, but what are your next goals that you're shooting for as you keep climbing the ladder? I think that's the thing. You kind of never know where the next opportunity arises. And now we're in such a weird time with mm -hmm. sports coming to a close and advertising dollars have dried up because businesses that usually advertise in the radio industry and then TV have no longer had that disposable income because they're not operational because people aren't allowed to go outside. So it's just, it just lines up to being an uncertain time in the industry right now. And you kind of have to be more patient than you want. And I still want to move up the ladder. You know, I still want to, whether it's be the number one voice at a school or get more opportunities network-wise or anything you can do to build up the resume and to move up the ladder as you put it. 
I'm still here to do. But right now, it's definitely a time where you have to be more patient. And it's frustrating because it's not in your control. Exactly. I mean, you don't know when you're going to be able to get back to work and what, you know, what your new, what the new normal is going to be and how it's going to look like. Exactly. <laughs> Which is strange to say, but that's where you are. I mean, I know here in the state that I'm living in, they're going to try to allow some places to open back up Thursday. But, you know, what's, what's it going to be like? What's the, you know, how many people actually going to be willing to step back out and actually go live their life again? Because I don't know yeah. if, if they're going to, if they're going to catch this virus or vice versa or whatever. So, I mean, it's definitely exactly. going to feel, it's definitely going to feel interesting coming up Thursday. How long will it take for businesses to feel like they've overstepped their losses that they've had? So That's going to be the big one. Disposable and it's just, if they can overcome them at all. Yeah. Because a lot of folks, unfortunately, they're in a, it's what we like to refer to as a catch-22 because as a single person or as a, you know, person that's, you know, supporting the family, you want to find a way to support them, but you also got to find a job or reapply for your old job or go find a job at home until you can figure out another way where you can support yourself and your family as you move forward. That's true. Well, by now, I've gone at least about, what, 25 minutes with you? Maybe longer than that. Longer than we agreed to, but as usual, we knocked it up. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Happy to do it. Happy to redo it. <laughs> hey, at, le at, le at least the good news is this time, at least I hit the darn record button this time like it was supposed to be. <laughs> Perfect. And looking Perfect. forward to getting your thoughts on my work and hopefully <clears throat> I'm going to listen to some of your work. As well. Sounds like a plan. Yes, sir.